Welcome to the inaugural episode of Brain in a Vat. Um, this is a philosophy show. We're going to be talking about a range of exciting ideas, and we're going to start every episode off with a thought experiment. Um, my name is Mark Oppenheimer. I'm a practicing advocate from Johannesburg, uh, but my background is in moral philosophy. I'm joined by my co-host, uh, Jason Werbelop. Jason, would you like to tell us a bit about yourself? Yeah. Um, hi, Mark. So um, I have a PhD in philosophy from Wits University, and my focus has been on social issues, social ontology, but I'm also very interested in morality and how it applies to groups, which is going to become very important for today's episode. And uh, Jason is also a quite prominent sci-fi author who uses all sorts of intriguing philosophical ideas in his books. Um, those of you will notice um, two images behind Jason um, from some of his recent books, um, Head On and Defragmenting Daniel. Um, and some of the ideas that come up in those books will be talked about in today's show. Um, okay, so Jason, the, the thought experiment we're starting off with is uh, the trolley problem. Um, do you want to give a short assessment of how the trolley problem works? Yeah, so the trolley problem basically tries to assess our intuitions about whether we want to sacrifice one person for lots of people. And there's lots of different versions of it. Um, Here's the classic version, is that you're a train driver, you're sitting in a train, and the train's chugging along, and you see in the distance that there are five people tied to the track. So if you keep going on this track, you're going to hit those five people, and presumably they're all going to die. But there's a switch. Just in time, there's a switch, and you can switch lanes. But if you switch lanes, there's one person tied to that track. So if you switch lanes, you're going to kill that person. Question is, should you flick the switch. Should you switch to the lane with one person and kill that person instead of the five? So I gather a lot of people have this strong intuition that we should um, save as many lives as possible uh, and that therefore it's a very simple choice. We hit the switch um, and instead of five innocent people dying, only one innocent person dies. Um, are, are there any sort of uh, counters to that? Yeah, so, so the problem with flicking the switch is that some people say, well, whoa, you know, uh, you, you're actively killing someone if you, if you flick the switch. Uh, you know, if you don't flick the switch, you know, what happens is what happens. But if you flick the switch, you're actively killing someone. You can't do that. And then what they do is, you know, you can, you can take this trolley problem. By the way, we call it a trolley problem because the train here in Canadian is called a trolley. Um, and we take this trolley problem and we, we kind of embellish it a bit more. And we say, okay, now imagine it's not flicking the switch anymore, but imagine you're not on the train, you're on a bridge above the train, and there's a man next to you, and you can push that man. Imagine he's a fat man, right? So you can push this fat man off the bridge, and he'll block the train, and the train will derail and save everyone. What, the five people further down the track won't be hit. The, tra the train won't hit them, but the but the fat man that you push off the bridge will die. Question is, should you push the fat man off the bridge? And now people start to get a little bit more uncomfortable. Yeah, so it seems like what you're driving home is this difference between an active and a passive kill. In other words, it's very obvious to us that we've made a decision by pushing the fat man off, um, off the bridge as opposed to sitting back and doing nothing and allowing a bad thing to happen. There's also like a different level of gruesomeness, right? So, you know, with the fat man, it feels quite visceral. You know, you push the fat man off the bridge and you see him get splattered all over the tracks and, you know, we can really build up the thought experiment, right? And people kind of shy away from that and they say, no, 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 no I would never push the fat man off the bridge. Um, but they would flick the switch in the first case. So, you know, what's happening here? What intuitions are people going with? So, Philosophers talk about two different uh, types of moral systems. We talk about utilitarianism and deontology or Kantianism. And utilitarians say that you must save the maximum number of people. Why? Because you must maximize utility in society as a whole. And utility is something like happiness. Okay, so you must maximize happiness. And they'll say you must save the five people on the track. But a Kantian or a deontologist said you say, he says you have certain duties, and those duties are to respect each and every person with dignity or respect. And that means you can't sacrifice one for many. You can't use a person merely as a means to an end. You have to respect the dignity of every person involved. So, you know, Mark and I have been thinking a lot about the trolley problem recently because it's particularly important for the COVID-19 situation. Yeah, you're right. So, you know, 
I've taught this this problem to to students before. You've done the same. And a lot of students would say, all right, fine, but when are we ever going to find ourselves in a situation where we have to make this stark choice between lives? This is just some stupid philosophy thought experiment. What practical application does it have? And now we find ourselves in probably the world's greatest trolley problem. Now, here's how I cash it out on the one hand. There's this capacity for states to institute strong lockdown procedures, to tell citizens that they must quarantine themselves, um, to stop a bunch of shops from operating, to close sporting events. Uh, in South Africa, we have a particularly strong lockdown, but we see lockdown approaches adopted all around the world. Uh, and so the idea is that we interfere with people's ordinary rights, their freedom of movements, their freedom to run a business, and we say we're going to set that aside because we have this good in mind, which is to save lives. And so what we do on the track is we say, well, let's, let's do something active, which is impose a, a lockdown. Let's pull the switch. Okay? And what we're going to do is we're going to hurt our economy and we're going to hurt people's sense of dignity and freedom, but we're going to save all the people who are tied to the track who would die from COVID. That's the way that the sort of experiment is cashed out, that we're making this choice between the economy and between health. Yeah. So the idea is, I mean, in kind of the, the, the most rosy paint, the, the, the rosiest picture of the lockdown is that there are no people on the other track. When you flip that switch, yeah, there's a bunch of pianos and things on the track that'll get destroyed. You know, there's people's livelihoods, there's valuable items that will get destroyed. Economies will reduce in value, but there's no, there's no people. Whereas on the original track, if we just let COVID spread, there's a whole bunch of people who are going to die. So, so by locking down, what we're doing is we're, we're making the utilitarian choice. At least that, that's, the, that, that's the prima facie view, right? So that's, that's the view that we take without further consideration, is that this is the utilitarian view. You, you, switch, you, you switch the switch. Yeah. So, look, I want to say this, which is that the trolley problem is this heuristic device. It kind of helps us give a lens for understanding the problem. But let's complicate things a little bit. We are in the real world and we're in you know, the COVID world. And here's the first problem I see. In the trolley problem, you can tell me with certainty that if you pull the switch, you will save these lives. And you can see how many people there are on the track. You know, there's five here and there's one here. Now, do we have that with COVID? Well, the difficulty we have is we've got this data problem. So we have some information that's been rolling in. So we know that... Um, you know, there are, a, I think, close to 2 million cases around the world at the moment. Um, so how many people have tested positive for the results? And we know how many people who um, tested positive for COVID have died. Yeah, and so the, the numbers are 2.3, sorry to interrupt you, Mark, the, the numbers are 2.3 million cases at the moment with 158,885 deaths. Mm. So uh, Jason's going to be pulling up some useful stats throughout our discussion. Um, that comes with Worldometer. I think one of the things that's interesting is um, dating when we have this discussion. So because those numbers change very rapidly, you know, if you go back a month, you know, the, the numbers look drastically, drastically different. Even a few days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and we can break that down on, on World, World of Meter and we can see how things look per country. So we can see that America uh, has the most number of cases. How many cases are there today, Jason? So 728,000 altogether um, with a total of 38,244 deaths. And if you look at Italy, what do the cases look like today? So 175,000, almost 176,000 cases in Italy with 23,000 deaths. Okay, so the first thing that seems to strike me on that is that the case fatality rate is quite different in those two countries. So in Italy, it looks like it's well above 10%, um, whereas in America, it's a lot less than 10%. And if you look through um, all of those countries, we see that there's a big difference in case fatality rate. So the first thing that we might be thinking is that, well, there's not a universal lever to be pulled um, here, that different countries might be faced with different problems um, and they might have to make the decision differently. Utilitarians ultimately care about the data and what is actually going to yield the best consequences and that might be different in different countries or different provinces of a country. Yeah, so that's a very interesting point. And it generates um, a serious problem for utilitarians, especially with countries that don't yet have any data. 
So they're just starting out. They've got a handful of cases. What do they do? Now, South Africa, very early on, much earlier on than most countries, certainly much earlier on than most European countries in America, chose to lock down with very few cases comparatively. Um, so what they did was they looked ahead on the track and they said, we're going to follow the, 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 our track is going to look very similar to, to Italy's or to Spain's or to China's. And so we've got to lock down now before that happens. Um, Botswana has locked down even sooner than we did. Um, and they've locked down for a longer period of time. They've declared a six month lockdown. So this gets very interesting for utilitarians because utilitarianism could be split into two types. You get what's called actual utilitarians and probabilistic utilitarians. So actual utilitarians, they care about what actually, what actually results. What are the actual consequences of my choices? And if it turns out that the actual consequences of my choices are good, well, then my choice lands up being good. And if the actual consequences are bad, then my choice is bad, regardless of how much information I have at the time. But probabilistic utilitarians say, okay, let's look at the data we have. Based on the best data we have right now, what should we do? If it turns out that that data is wrong in, in the future, well, tough. My choice is still the right one, given what I know. So we, we went along with probabilistic utilitarianism here in South Africa by locking down very early, and Botswana is doing the same. We're predicting that things are going to get horrendous if we don't do something ahead of that data coming in. So I think the other thing we've got to think about is, in the trolley case, it's pretty clear to us which lives we're saving. You know, it's those identifiable ones. And so we've got to give a bit of thought to, well, who is the lockdown aimed at saving? What, what is the purpose of the lockdown? You know, is it about stopping people from getting infected forever? Um, or is it about something else? And it seems like there's been a, a two different ways of approaching it. The one is to say, well, if we get a vaccine, then we can inject people with the vaccine, and then they won't get it, and uh, they will never get it, and that will save them from enduring the disease. Now, so we lock down until, sorry, Mark. So we, we lock down until that vaccine's available, right? That's the idea is you would just like, you would wait it out. Yes, exactly. So you say, we wait it out until we get a vaccine. The other one is you say, maybe look, the vaccine might take a bit of time. At the moment, the estimate is a year and a half. What if we wait it out so that we get better treatments? So scientists are rapidly working out a whole bunch of different treatments and those treatments might make it a less severe disease to, to endure or might cut down your time in hospitals. Here's the other way of looking at it, which is, well, you know, everyone is aware of this sort of phrase of flatten the curve. So the idea is that if we do nothing, what the curve does is this. It's a very rapid spike and then you know, up and then a spike down. Um, and those are, uh, that's the curve of new cases, right? Yes. Yeah. So new cases rapidly accelerating, reaching a peak um, and then coming down because eventually what happens is everyone in the society gets it. Uh, they recover. And the assumption is that they will be immune. Um, and there's the area inside the curve. So if we think about it like this, you know, inside the curve is a certain number of people that fall inside. Now, what those flatten the curve graphs have is a little bar. Okay? And the curve goes through the bar and, and down. Now, what that is, that bar is the amount of medical resources that are available. So uh, it's how many doctors there are, how many hospitals there are. And it's not that people just die of the virus they die of not being able to get access to decent treatment. So you might be the kind of person who um, contracts the virus, um, requires a hospital bed, and because you go to the hospital and there are no hospital beds, you die. But if you'd gotten access to a hospital bed, you wouldn't have died. So the idea is that overloading the hospitals causes these additional deaths. It also obviously crowds out other non-COVID-related cases. So people who um, require heart surgeries or cancer treatment or whatever it is, might be denied access to resources because they're flooded by the COVID victims. So there's these secondary kinds of COVID deaths. Okay. So, but the flatten the curve, the idea is, well, the area, the number of people that get it might be the same. Um, if it's a million people that get it in the, the spike case, it might be a million people that get it in the flatten the curve case. But the idea is we flatten it so that all of those people can get processed through the hospital system um, without there ever being a shortage of beds. So those it takes a longer time. It takes it takes a longer time for them to get it, right? It takes a longer time for them to get it. So um, you know, so in other words, as people come into the hospital, they recover, they then leave the hospital, and new people can come in. And so we kind of make way along the along the process. And so the the purpose then of flattening the curve for that rationale is we're saving a very particular set of lives. 
So if we think about our population, there's the person who's going to get COVID and experience no symptoms whatsoever, totally asymptomatic. Then there's the person who's going to experience mild symptoms. Um, mild meaning you don't need to go to hospital. It might be still very unpleasant. You've got a bad cough. You've got an, uh, um, a lot of pain, um, and uh, but you don't need to go to hospital. Then there's the hospitalized set, people who do need to go to hospital, who would develop, uh, let's say, pneumonia or heavy breathing problems. And if we gave them a hospital bed, they don't die. But if they didn't get a hospital bed, they would die. And then there's, let's say, the severely critical cases where it doesn't matter. If you get COVID, if you go to hospital, or you don't go to hospital, you are going to die. You have enough comorbidities um, that the disease is going to kill you. And where it'll just be a matter of where you die, in a hospital bed or if you die at home. So if we think about the sort of triaging, which is, in other words, prioritizing those that can be saved, it really is that middle category of people who need a hospital bed and wouldn't get it otherwise. And those are the people that are deriving the benefit from flattening the curve. Okay, so that's, that's who we know is tied to the tracks. In other words, those are the people who are held hostage by the disease, and we're trying to not run over them by hitting the switch and going to the other set of tracks. Jason, what's on the other side? Well, on the other side is the economy, right? So initially, in the way we, we spelled out the thought experiment, the economy didn't have any people on it. It just had pianos and valuable things, right? Businesses, pianos, some money. You know, okay, all of that gets destroyed by the train, but there's no people on that track. But it turns out that that's not such a simple, a simple equation, right? So it gets more complicated because on the other side of the track, on the economic side of the track, when you eliminate people's income, when you reduce their ability to work and, and, and earn, they can't feed themselves, right? And they can't feed their families and they can't get access to healthcare in a way that they would want to. And they can't do the things that keep them healthy like uh, go to gym, exercise, eat well, um, see a doctor, see a psychologist. And then you have a whole bunch of very stressed out, unhealthy people, and that itself could cause death, right? So the problem is that it's not the case that there's only deaths on the COVID track. There's also deaths on the ruin the economy track because locking down does ruin the economy, right? It hurts the economy. How much it hurts the economy is a very interesting question. Yeah, and so this is, it seems that it's going to be dependent on where you live. So, for example, we know in America that um, the state there has injected $2 trillion into the economy. Um, a lot of it is going to be direct payments to people so that they can keep feeding themselves. In South Africa, we, we've set up a fund of 150 million rand. So if, you, if you're not South African, uh, divide that number roughly by 20 to get the dollars. So we're talking about a totally paltry sum of money um, you know, for our 60 million people population. So we're about a fifth uh, the size of America. Now It works out to a few rand a person, right? Um, yes, yeah, a few rand a person. So we're going to try and put some of that money into rescuing some businesses, but even those businesses are going to get very small amounts of assistance. Look, there are these funds, um, the few billion rand funds, um, set aside by some of the wealthier families in South Africa. Um, my understanding, I don't know whether this is true or not, is that some of those are loans rather than gifts, uh, rather than donations. Um, but either way, it's still a paltry amount of money compared with the US trillions of dollars pumping into their economy. Yeah. And so the other thing we've got to think about is what did our economies look like before? So America had one of the uh, lowest unemployment rates it's had in its history, I think since the 60s. Um, and it has shot up, you know, uh, um, it's, it's really, you know, grown quite dramatically having people unemployed in America. South Africa um, had a 30% unemployment rate going in. Um, so, and we have a, a lot of people who are unemployed and even those that are employed who don't earn that much money. So our sort of vulnerable class of people is much higher. So when we say that, you know, we're going to shut down our economy, um, you know, it's going to have much more immediate health consequences for those people. In other words, um, there's the health consequences like not being able to feed yourself, but there's other kinds of health consequences. So we're already seeing some social unrest. Um, people are looting stores. Um, they're having altercations with the police. Uh, we have the army on the streets to try and enforce a lockdown, and some people have died at the hands of the police. Um, at one stage, more people had died at the hands of the police than had died from COVID. Now, um, so you can have social unrest and that can lead to all sorts of other kinds of health consequences. 
Yeah, and there's there's other there's other things like um, they're finding um, uh, um, domestic abuse is increasing in homes for women and children because they're captive in a home um, with an abusive partner or abusive spouse or abusive parent, um, where before they could escape the home, now they can't. Um, so the number of reported cases has skyrocketed. But there are other things that are happening as well with our lockdown. So we've had placed a ban on alcohol um, and we've also made it very difficult for people to drive. You can only drive for essential services or to go and you know, pick up essential goods. So what we've found at the moment is that actually South African hospitals are largely empty. We've got very few people who have picked up the disease um, or are critical. Um, and so you've got a lot of hospital beds that used to be filled with people that were um, in car accidents. South Africa has one of the highest car accident death rates in the world um, and people aren't driving. So we're seeing a lot less road accidents in hospitals. We're also seeing a lot less people um, who have been assaulted in drunken brawls. This was the kind of classic ICU case. And, uh, um, you know, Sunday morning, you'd have people who'd been in the bar fights. Um, and we're not seeing that because all the taverns are shut. So we're finding these, let's say, indirect health benefits. People's, people who would have died in a normal world are not dying because we've instituted a lockdown. Um, now, this has not gone unnoticed by the state. Our Minister of Police has said, you know, maybe we should consider banning alcohol when this whole thing is over because, you know, it's really so much easier on the police and we're saving all these lives and, you know, what a wonderful thing. Now, my concern with this is it's this narrow view about consequences. And it's a problem for utilitarians generally, which is we can often see the immediate consequence of something. So our Minister of Police says, well, I can see uh, there's an immediate consequence of banning alcohol. But what are the consequences of the consequences? Well, we can look back in history and we can look at you know, long-term prohibition in America. And what you found was that people did drink, even though it was illegal. They found ways. They would brew it themselves. They would make illicit moonshine, some of which would, they would go blind from. Or they would start importing it illegally from other countries like Canada. Um, and so you have to have an import network, which is doing something illegal. So the mafia arose and you had this long-standing crime network. Um, and once alcohol became legalized, um, they found something else to deal in, you know, some other kind of illicit activity. Um, and because they were involved in illegal uh, business, if they had a business dispute, ordinarily people go to court and they resolve the disputes and they say, look at the contract or this is what happened. Um, and the mafia go, we can't do that. So we'll have to resort to violence. And so you have these sort of gangland fights, something we still find, you know, with drug prohibition that, um, you know, drug lords will have their own apparently informal negotiation, mediation, dispute resolution network. And when that fails, well, then you bring out the nine more. Yeah. So, I mean, this gets very complicated. Remember, initially, I wanted to divide utilitarianism into actual utilitarianism and probabilistic utilitarianism. But there's another way utilitarianism, another dimension along which you can divide the view. The one is short-term utilitarianism versus long-term utilitarianism, right? So short-term utilitarians say, all I care about are the immediate consequences of my actions. That's what determines whether they're right or wrong. But a long-term utilitarian, utilitarian says, what I care about is the consequences of those consequences of those consequences of those consequences of those actions. And just how far into the future you look is a, a perpetual problem for utilitarians. Do you look a year in the future? Do you look 10, 100, 1,000, a million? You know, how, how far ahead do you, do you look? And you know, the idea is that if you were to ban alcohol, there might be a short-term positive utilitarian positive utility value, but a long-term negative utility value. And this is a problem with the lockdown generally. You know, it might have a short-term benefit in terms of saving lives because people are less likely to get COVID, but long-term, you're ruining an economy which could, in a very indirect way, consequences of consequences down the line result in deaths and in civil unrest and general unhappiness and a disutility in society. So let's turn to uh, another interesting thing that came out in our in our trolley problem. It seemed like, you know, people are happy to pull that switch in the beginning, but they get very uneasy about pushing off the fat man. And I wonder if what's going on there is not a moral judgment, but an aesthetic one. There's something visceral about taking a person and physically pushing them off. And I wonder if that's shaped our intuitions about COVID as well. So we think about some of the visceral images that we've seen of, you know, um, bodies piling up in hospitals. Um, of um, mass graves in New York. We look at that visceral image, and that is the fat man being pushed in a way, and we go, oof, we can't allow that to happen. We, we cannot make this 
horrible thing happen. We need to avoid that visceral image. And so instead we steer at the economy. And it's harder for us to visualize all of the equally visceral things that will happen, the rioting, um, the deaths from starvation, you know, the mass graves that will result from that. But they're in the distance. And so we don't visualize them. And we accept that, that cost, even though for the person being obliterated by the train, it is equally visceral. Right. So now, you know, so far we've just focused on utilitarianism, but the deontologist can now step in, right? And he can say, okay, okay, the calculation is irrelevant. We don't care what the calculation is. You can never sacrifice individuals for the good of society as a whole. You can never satisfy, you, you can't sacrifice those COVID patients in order to save the economy, even if somewhere down the line, that loss of the economy might result in deaths. That's so indirect that it's not, it's not a part of your action. You have no duty to protect that economy, but you do have a duty to protect lives and to protect people's dignity. In this case, it would be the COVID patients. So the deontologist steps in and he says, no, 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 no. You cannot push that fat man off the bridge, right? You can't do it. And there's some cool ways of cashing out the, the trolley problem so that it really captures this intuition. Okay, so one of those ways is to kind of uh, spell the, the trolley problem in a different way. And I was introduced to this kind of uh, this version of the trolley problem by um, a good friend and previous lecturer of mine. And he's just, he's just a brilliant philosopher, Thaddeus Metz. So Thad gives this, uh, this way of, 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 of uh, phrasing the trolley problem. He says, imagine you're in a, in a tour group. Okay, and the tour group, uh, you want to go um, down to the coast, and you want to go on a little spelunking expedition. Spelunking is caving, right? So you want to you want to go and explore the caves by by the coast, by the shore. And you all you you're in a big tour group. There's like twenty of you, and you walk inside one of these caves by the ocean, and you're exploring and exploring. And then the last person who steps into that the mouth of that cave is a fat man, right? He's a really fat man, and he gets lodged. He gets stuck in the mouth of this cave, okay? And all of you, yourself and a whole bunch of other tourists are stuck behind him in the cave. And his head is kind of sticking out of this cave. Anyway, what happens is over time, the tide starts to rise and the cave starts to flood and you're all stuck in this cave. So now what are you gonna do? Well, one of you very luckily has a stick of dynamite. And you could stick it in the fat man's mouth, light it, and blow up the fat man. It's going to be super gross, right? But everyone except the fat man is going to live because the fat man is going to blow up, the mouth of the cave is going to be open, and everyone's going to be able to walk out and be saved. Everyone but the fat man will live. But on the other hand, if you don't blow up the fat man, everyone inside the cave is going to die except for the fat man because his head is kind of sticking out of the cave above the level of the ocean, above the level of the water. He's not going to drown. But the rest of you, you're going to drown. What do you do? Do you blow up the fat man? It's super gross, right? It's super gruesome. But that is the equivalent here of taking away ventilators from patients or not uh, flattening the curve enough through a lockdown that you, you don't have enough ventilators to give to patients and you have to dig mass graves and re refuse people treatment because there's not enough ventilators, not enough hospital beds, not enough medication, etc. So what do you do? And the deontologist says, never, you never do it. You never, ever do it. And the utilitarian says, no, well, sometimes you do it, but we need to look very carefully at the calculation. So what we've so far looked at is on the economy side. So on the economy side, we've said, we haven't looked in detail, but we've said, look, you've got to look further down the track and you've got to see that further down the track, there are deaths and there's unrest and there's disutility involved. But now let's look on the COVID side. You know, if we, we now putting aside utilitarianism for a moment and purely look at the COVID side, you know, how many people are going to die if we do nothing? In other words, if we don't do a lockdown. And this is where it gets really complicated because the numbers are not clear. Yeah, so let's add a few uh, further complications in. So one of the questions we have is, I mentioned earlier, we know how many people have tested positive um, with COVID, but we don't know if people actually have COVID. So there's some early studies um, that have come out looking at some, there's a small town in Germany and there's a town in California that say they've done some antibody testing and it turns out that a lot more people have it than have tested. Now, that implies that, well, the one way of reading that is that actually a lot of people are asymptomatic. 
um, and that what we've all we've captured thus far are the sick cases, those people that were so sick they went to hospital and there they, they got tested. And we basically had a selection bias in our data, and it made things look much more severe than they really are. And that's why we have you know death rates in Italy over twelve percent um, because the very severe cases are the ones that were tested. Also, Italy has one of the oldest populations in the world, um, and also the Lombardy region where the outbreak first came out is a very polluted region. So people are much more likely to, you know, have had other health concerns, um, you know, lots of pollution in their lungs, that sort of thing. And we find that in other countries uh, we don't see that. There's other factors that um, may or may not play a role. So um, there's a view, there's a paper that was produced looking at the BCG um, vaccine. It's a vaccine that. Um, uh, is used for the treatment of tuberculosis. And so there is a, if you go to BCG um, Atlas, you can have a look at the world map and you can see which countries in the world have universal BCG. Um, and you can go and click on a country and you can see how long they've had it for. And what's interesting is that third world countries tend to have had universal BCG because they were concerned about um, tuberculosis, whereas a lot of countries in Europe and the States um, didn't. And if we then look at the COVID map uh, on a per capita basis, we see that it tracks pretty neatly with the BCG map. So there is some reason to believe that maybe BCG makes it much harder for people to get COVID um, or that they're less likely to die. Now, um, there are some concerns with this. There might be third factor reasons um, why we're seeing this overlap, one of which is that uh, Europe is a, a tourist hotspot. We've got people from all over the world traveling to Europe, um, and that might be why we've had a much bigger outbreak there as opposed to Africa. Um, we also know that the ability to test is going to be different, that um, the states were initially quite slow on the uptake on testing, but have really ramped that up. And that's why we're seeing more cases. Um, and so the reason why we see a small number of cases in Africa is probably because there's a lot less testing going on. Um, I mentioned earlier that South Africa has 2,500 cases. Well, that's from 100,000 tests that have been done. But from what I gather, very few of those tests have actually been done in the public sector, um, which implies that there could be many, many more people who have it, um, and you know our, our numbers are, are not accurate. So there's this question: as about how many people have it, and therefore how 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 dangerous is it? You know how how many people are going to die from it? Um, and then again, we've got this. You know, if we sort of think about our trolley problem, it's a visibility problem. It's a line of sight problem. So in the trolley problem, we can see quite clearly. Well, there's five people there. Here we might be able to sort of think we can see people on the track, but it's a mirage. Uh, the number of people might be rapidly changing as the data comes in and out. Um, it might be that it's much worse. So, um, Jason, I, I know one of the scenarios that, that you've pointed out is, well, it's not that you get COVID and you die immediately. It might take some time for it to kill you. That's right. So you've been pointing out factors that would reduce the mortality rate. So at the moment, if you take the, the world's um, total number of reported cases and you take the world's total number of reported deaths, it works out at 6.9% mortality rate. So 6.9% of the people who have reported to have been positive have died. But you know, there's all these factors, right? So Mark has pointed out some factors that would suggest that that 6.9% is way too high. Actually, it's much, much lower than that. Why? Because there's a whole bunch of cases that we haven't reported, but there's the same number of deaths. So you would divide the deaths by the number of cases. And because the cases are bigger, you've got fewer people coming. You've got, you've got a lower mortality rate. And the German study, the, the, the German study said that number is seven times. So in the German study, 2% of the town that they tested, 2% uh, of that town had tested positive, confirmed positive. But when they did the antibody test, they found out that 14% of the town had at some point had COVID. So what that means is that seven times the number of people who have confirmed positive have actually had it. So the tests are lagging by seven times. So that would take that 6.9% and divide it by seven down to 1% mortality rate then it's looking like there's not nearly as many deaths. And when you look at the BCG vaccine, the tuberculosis vaccine, then maybe our track in South Africa and other countries that have the BCG vaccine, there's going to be far fewer people lining up on that track. Right. So, so those are factors which might, we don't know for sure, but they might reduce the mortality rate in countries, certain countries. But on the other hand, there's certain things that will increase the mortality rate. 
So one of them, there's two factors, two big factors. The one is that there's a whole bunch of deaths that have happened where the bodies haven't been reported to have had COVID, but they actually did have COVID and died from the disease. So in Wuhan yesterday, what they did was they took their total number of reported deaths and they increased it by 50% overnight. Why? Because all the deaths that had been reported had been from hospitals, but it turned out that for every two people that died in a hospital bed, one person died at home, but they were never reported. So suddenly their mortality rate shot up overnight. So there's going to be those, those cases that are going to increase the mortality rate. But there's another very important case as well. And that is that there's a whole bunch of people who get the disease now, who confirm positive now, but will only die in a few weeks or a month later. So there's an estimate that people die anywhere from two weeks to a month after they confirm positive on average. Now, that's a very big range, two weeks to four weeks. And depending on whether it's two weeks or four weeks, you get a very different mortality rate. So um, Mark and I did a bit of calculation. And what we saw was that if you take the numbers on Worldometer for the entire world and you look at the mortality rate right now and you don't factor in any of these other factors, you get 6.9%. But if you factor in the one to seven rate of seven times the number of people having the disease versus those who are testing positive, and in addition, you, you, you report deaths two weeks after they are infected. In other words, in order to divide the number of deaths, you divide it by the number of active cases two weeks ago, not currently. Then you get to a 3.1% mortality rate. If you take it to three weeks ago, you get to a 7.4% mortality rate. And if you take it to four weeks, you get to a 12.7% mortality rate. So... The mortality rates here are highly variable depending on factors that we haven't knuckled down. And some people say that, you know, we've got this all wrong. The number of cases isn't seven times more, it's 40 or 50 times more. So the Californian study said that. By the way, it hasn't been peer-reviewed. So, you know, we haven't, we haven't got those numbers knuckled down. It's also within a particular town, so we don't know whether it's representative of America as a whole. Also, it was done at the beginning of March, and at the beginning of March, there weren't many active tests being done beside the antibody test. So there's lots of factors involved. But the point is, some people have said that the mortality rates are as low as 0.36%, an Oxford study recently. So now we've got, we've got ranges from 0.36% on this side to 12.7% on this side. And that is a huge difference in the number of bodies that you're going to land up with if you choose the COVID track. So there's just so much uncertainty and muddying in the data, mud in the data, that it's so hard to make a decision on purely utilitarian grounds. So is there an argument that what we say is another reason to hit pause, to be very cautious, is to say we need to let uh, the data come in. So we should have this very staunch lockdown. We should assume that it could be 12%, that that's our, our worst case scenario. By the way, I, that 12% number from what I gather is you taking into account that the number of cases could be seven times more. That's your underlying assumption. Yes, it's, it's taking into account that, but also with a four-week lag. Yes, yeah, with a four-week lag. Uh, I mean, one of the scenarios you showed me was we, we, don't, we assume that the number of tests are the number of cases, um, and and your, you had a mortality rate, I think, getting close to 60% if you took the full. Yes, yeah, so that's correct. So if you don't take into account the one to seven unreported cases, you're getting a 60% mortality rate if you compare the number of deaths now versus the number of cases four weeks ago reported, which is just utterly horrendous. Um, obviously, you know, that's not a good way of looking at it because you've got to look at this antibody test. Yeah. Um, we some- but we don't know that... Sorry, go ahead, Mark. We have some reason to believe that it's not a 60% um, case fatality rate. So one is we can look at Wuhan. Um, we can sort of say that they, their curve has done this. It's gone down, which is um, 80,000 cases in China. Um, most people have recovered. Um, they've now unearthed some extra deaths. So they're only counting deaths in hospitals. They're now picking up that people died at home. And they've taken that into account. Um, roughly, what, what is their mortality rate? Um, I don't have a calculation in front of me, but from memory, with the new cases added, plus they're still adding cases from other provinces that weren't reported in hospitals, we can probably expect about 7%. Okay. 
So, and then our other case is the sort of almost your little test tube case, which is the princess, um, the princess Mary um, uh, cruise ship. Prince, diamond, diamond princess, diamond I princess. think. Uh, diamond yeah. princess. And so there you had about 700 people that were on it. And um, I think only six people died. Yeah. So there you've got an under 1% mortality rate. Yes. Um, yeah. So, so, so that's an interesting case because it's a closed system. Right, so so it's a closed system with no confounding variables, and so you get a very good idea of um, in a closed system with perfect medical care because they were able to give perfect care to those seven hundred people. What, how many people will die? And it looks like it's just under one percent. Yeah, so we have that that scenario. There's another thing that we haven't talked about, which is we've just talk, talked about these deaths as someone who tests positive and then dies, but it seems to make a difference how you die. So, for example, we can have our terminal cancer patient who gets COVID and then dies. Um, now, the question is, what did they die of? Well, they died of the terminal cancer. They just happened to have COVID. Then let's say there's the person um, who was perfectly well. They had no underlying conditions, whatever, got COVID, and then they died. So, therefore, COVID was the direct cause of their death. And then let's say there's the sort of the mixed case. So, someone had some underlying conditions they got COVID, they wouldn't have died otherwise. So hypertension, for example, um, you know, high blood pressure isn't going to kill you on its own, um, but when you combine it with COVID, it ups your chances of death. Um, so there's that combination factor. And then there's the sort of accelerated death. So you probably would have died in five years, given your state of health, but you got COVID and instead you died in five weeks. Now, what we've got to then think about is if we are involved in a cost-benefit analysis, you know, who are we trying to save? Um, well, it seems like the people that we care most about are those that um, would not have died were it not for COVID. So let's say those with the um, pre-existing conditions like hypertension. So they weren't going to die of hypertension, um, but now their chances of dying have gone really up. And let's say those people that are healthy, those people who are going to die anyway of the other underlying conditions, we might think of as less of a priority. The other way, we've been talking thus far about lives um, and assuming that all lives are interchangeably equal. There's another way we could think about it, which is um, years of life. So um, we could think that, well, if you are 80 years old and you are then have got a 15% chance of dying um, at the age of 80 if you get COVID, how many more years of life did you have left in you? Well, we might say five years of life, uh, you know, if you're going to live to 85. So we lost five years there. If we lost a child, uh, you know, let's say a, a two-year-old who's going to live you know, to the age of 85, we lost 83 years of life. Um, so that would be one way of doing the calculation. Um, Jason, I gather you might have a different calc. Yeah. So I know this might be an unpopular view, although I think your view is also unpopular. <laughs> uh, people like old people. Um, but, you know, my view is that I particularly like old people and I don't like children. So on my view, children have disutility. In other words, they generally make people unhappy. And if you look at stats, parents who have children are generally less happy than they were before having the children and less happy than, than, than other parents who don't, or other adults who don't have children. So, so, and you have to pump so many resources into children before they can start generating money of their own and, you know, have a job and create a business and participate in the society and, feed poor people and whatever it is, right? You know, children are just, they just, they just suck in materials, right? Now that doesn't mean they have no value. Okay. They might like give your life meaning. They, they might, they might contribute to other values in your life. But when we're looking at morality, we look, we're looking at utility, we're looking at happiness and children, children are not, are not, they don't generate happiness. On the other hand, I think that when you look at old people, the last year of their life, the last a few years and specifically the last few months of their lives are often incredibly important. It's an incredibly important time. Um, you know, suppose you're dying of cancer and you know you've got six months to live. During those six months, you might have a whale of a time, right? You also might suffer a lot from the cancer. That's true. But you might, for example, if you're an artist, produce your best work. Or if you're an intellectual, you might produce your best, your best, your best intellectual work, your best writing. Um, and also you might resolve longstanding feuds with the people in your lives, um, you know, this time is an incredibly important time for people. And, and when, when we just throw them to the wolves, we throw them on the track, let the, the train chugga chugga over them. Um, what we're doing is 
We're depriving people of those most important time, those most important months in their lives. It's not just months, you know, there's lots of people over the age of 50 dying. They have a good 15, 20 years left in their lives. And if you have a look at, at happiness graphs, they kind of look like a U in one's life. You know, um, at, at the beginning of one's life, you're quite kind of quite happy. And then it kind of goes down in your thirties. And then when you, when you, when you're in your sixties, you like feel great again, you know, it's, it's like the golden years. And we're depriving people of their golden years, you know. And, and in addition to that, besides happiness, old people also provide an enormous amount of value to society. So if you look at, you know, most NGOs, most businesses, they run by older people. You know, most presidents are older people. Okay, some people might not like presidents, but um, let's just assume presidents are valuable people. You know, uh, older people have a lot of value. And just to say that, you know, we're looking at pure number of years might negate the point that we should be looking at the quality of those years and old people have enormous quality in those years. Yeah. So I think you raised something, um, you know, fundamental in philosophy, this sort of question about value and what is valuable. And it seems like there's different ways we could adjudicate that. So the one is how valuable someone is to themselves um, and how valuable they are, let's say to their loved ones and how valuable they are to society. And it seems like that's going to cash out in different ways. So I think for example, if you're um, in your 40s and you have young children um, and you are given the choice between your five-year-old child dying um, or your elderly parent dying, it would be a horrible, horrible choice, but people might be more accustomed to the idea of their elderly parent dying, that they can live with that death, um, whereas the death of their young child um, for them might be felt as so much more of a loss, you know, that this child had all this potential. Um, and you know, I find a lot of marriages end if a child dies in an accident. Um, whereas, you know, if your parent dies, you know, your, your spouse is there to sort of support you through that and the marriage subsists. There's another thing, which is the value to the person themselves. So if we think about a, a very, very young child, you know, let's say a, a, an infant, a newborn, um, they don't yet have the capacity to, to value themselves. Um, they don't have full personhood. So they don't know how valuable they are yet. Their parents might value them enormously. Um, you know, there's something very beautiful and innocent about this newborn child. Um, and it would be a tragedy if the newborn child died, but it might not be a tragedy from the child's perspective because it cannot have such a perspective. And similarly, we can imagine a very old person who's, you know, in dementia, who has also lost their personhood. And they, while they're beloved by their families, for them, they have no interest in their own lives because they cannot hold such an interest. Then there's the kind of value to society. So you mentioned, you know, kids sort of suck up resources. Um, they go to school, they, they don't pay rent, you know, they're not producing anything in the economy. Um, and then you've got these people who are, let's say, at their most productive years. So they're buying lots of things, they're trading their, their, their money for goods with others, they're helping prop up the economy. Um, so they're playing this role in supporting GDP. Uh, and then you've got those sort of, as you say, wise elder class, so the, the judges, you know, who've got all this accumulated wisdom, you know, are playing a role in, you know, keeping up values in society or, you know, the, the heads of, of big corporations are often going to be older. And if they were to die, you know, there'd be this immense loss for our, for our knowledge and for our economy. So it's not a straightforward exercise to work out, you know, is a life, are all lives equal? You know, are some lives worth more than others? Um, how do we value that? Is it by the number of years? Is it by position? Do we think that um, wealthy people, bright people, um, um, Virtuous people are worth more than uh, cruel people, poor people, you know, um, or do we want to kind of say, well, that conversation starts to look quite uncomfortable. So let's pretend that everybody has equal inherent value and that we're all equal in the eyes of God or in the eyes of law. So Kantians tend to do that. Deontologists tend to do that. They say what counts is whether you're a person or not not whether you're a nice person or a not nice person or an old person or a young person, are you a person? And if you're a person, then you count just as much as every other person. Uh, and Kantians, it, it does get complicated when you define personhood. You know, you can define it as a, a lot like Kant himself. He, he, Immanuel Kant, he defined a person as someone who has rationality, which then gets complicated because, you know, a very young child doesn't have rationality. And then he kind of refines it or other Kantians refined it to the potential for rationality. Um, so there's, there's, there's complicated questions there, but the, but the deontologist really wants to, um, simplify this problem and say, all persons are equally valuable and you cannot ever sacrifice one intentionally ever. So, so they would say, yeah, 
even if it's 0.36% of our, you know, mortality rate, even if it's the, the lowest estimate, we've got to protect those people. So I want to make things a little more complicated for the Kantian. So we think about the Kantian who says, I'm not willing to pull the switch. I will not take an active measure to kill someone. Um, ordinarily, I might have duties to save people. So for example, if there is you know, a young child um, that's drowning in the swimming pool, um, the virtuous thing to do is to jump in the pool and rescue the child. But if you told me that in order to you know, rescue that child, I had to kill another one. Well, no, there's a side constraint. There is something telling me that I cannot do that, no matter how good the yield is. If I could save 10 kids in the pool from drowning by stepping on the head of one to get there, you cannot do it. You have a moral responsibility not to sacrifice others for the, you know, use them as a means only for other people's ends. So here's why I say it gets complicated, because what is a lockdown? A lockdown is not passive. It is an active decision. It is a decision by the state not to sit back and allow nature to take its course. It's to say, there is a bad thing coming. COVID is coming and it's going to wipe out people. And we need to take an active step. And what we need to do to save these lives is to actively trample on people's rights. And initially, it won't be their lives. Um, it will be their quality of life. It will be their freedom of movement. It will be their freedom to run a business but it will be an active indirect cost on lives because some of those people through active measures will die of starvation or will die in social unrest. So now it's not so straightforward what the Kantian has to do, um, whether their obligation is to allow bad things to happen because they cannot dirty their hands by doing something active, which would ca cause harm and use people as a means only. Because we must accept that if you are a child, for example, uh, I think almost no children uh, have died uh, of the disease. I think there might be a few rarer instances, but it is incredibly unlikely. And if we say to children, you cannot go to school, you are sacrificing you know, an enormous amount of value in their lives, You know, the socialization with other children, the ability to get the education. Um, in, in poorer countries, often dropping out of school for you means you never return. So we are sacrificing them on the altar of saving other people who are older, who are, you know, who are less, less healthy. Um, and so is the Kantian doing the right thing by doing that, or are you being a Kantian when you impose a lockdown? I mean, these are such, such important and difficult questions because there's going to be muddying of all the empirical facts on both sides, right? So when you talk, talk about, let's say, sacrificing a child by not allowing him to go to school, well, there are kind of half measures to get him educated. You know, you can do online learning. Maybe online learning in a time of a lockdown and going forward will become so good that it'll be as good as in-person learning, you know. But we don't know. You know, we don't know. We don't know. Will it be or not? You know, so, so, so there's just so many question marks. And that's why I think that the deontologist, the Kantian, can't really answer the question at all, right? Mark knows I'm not a deontologist. I don't like Kantianism. I'm a utilitarian. I like to calculate the numbers. The problem is the numbers are so opaque right now that it's just, it's so opaque on both tracks. We don't really know what's going to happen to the economy if we lock down. And there's different types of lockdowns. There's softer lockdowns, there's smarter lockdowns. Multiple organizations like the DA and the Institute for Race Relations have given various versions of the lockdown to government that they think that they should employ. Different ways of ameliorating the economic strain. There's definitely going to be some strain. How much? We don't know. We don't know. Will the economy adapt? Will there be a V-shaped recovery, a slight recovery, a, a, just a total downward trajectory? We don't know. We don't know. We can't foresee the future. And on the other side of the track, we don't know how many people are going to die. So what do we do? Well, here's, I mean, here's, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hazard, hazard an opinion about this. Okay. So I, 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 think, I think the way to look at this is as follows. We should not dismiss either idea. We should not outright dismiss either a lockdown or no lockdown. We should not be claiming complete knowledge of what's going to happen and say, it's ridiculous that we're locking down. And we should not, on the other, other hand, say, you are a cruel, disgusting human being for saying that we shouldn't have a lockdown. We should have some agnosticism about this. In other words, agnosticism is the view that we just don't know. We don't know. And then the question becomes, if we don't know, what do we do? Now, this is a discussion Mark and I have kind of had to deal with in our own personal regards. So, so I decided to go into isolation a week before our lockdowns started. It was about, actually about 10 days before it started. And the reason why was because 
I'm asthmatic and my personal risk is so enormous if I were to catch the disease that my mortality rate, it looks like according to the best data we have, would be very high, um, my chance of death. And so I can't risk that. But then there's a whole bunch of other individuals with different mortality risks. And the question is, should they, if the government gave them the choice, should they leave home? And, you know, there's the mortality risk to them, but there's also the mortality risk if they get it asymptomatically and give it to someone else. You know, how are they going to feel about killing someone else and how should they feel about it? Um, these are really complex questions. And then this is just individuals. The question is then, what should the state do, given that the state needs to decide how risk averse it wants to be? I, I, I don't know. I'm an agnostic about this. And, and, and when people keep saying to me, you know, there should definitely be a lockdown, there should definitely be not be no lockdown. I keep saying to them, I just don't know. I don't know. But it seems to me like you want to have at least some soft measures on either side. So you want to develop a vaccine if possible and at least treatments for the disease on the one side. And on the other side, what you want to do is if you do have a lockdown, you want to make sure that you have it in a way that's not as damaging as possible to the economy. You want to allow businesses to operate. So for example, something we could do is eliminate the distinction between essential and non-essential goods and allow people to trade online and to have deliveries um, of any kind of good. At least then you've got some kind of eco economic activity going on. You know, that might ameliorate the effects of the lockdown. Will it be enough? I don't know. And will it result in a better track? I don't know. But I'm a probabilistic, medium-term utilitarian. So what that means is that I'm saying that on the best data we have, the best data we have right now, we've got to make a decision. And that data is what matters, not ultimately what results. We've got to look at what we have right now. And in my very humble agnostic opinion, we have enough data to suggest that there could be a very high mortality rate. My guess is between 6 and 12%. But I'm not, I'm not an epidemiologist, and I can't say for sure that I'm right, and I don't think any epidemiologist today can say that. But if that's the case, if there's enough evidence for that view that it's between 6 and 12%, then you've got to have some kind of measure to reduce that cost because there's so many people. 6 to 12% of a country is a lot of people dying, which itself is going to have economic impacts. So I, I'm in favor of a soft lockdown. That's my personal view. Sticking my neck out on the line here. So Jason, I'll, I'll say this, which is, I think a lot of people will be frustrated with parts of our conversation when we say we just don't know. But what we've tried to do throughout is say, well, there are some things we do know. So we can have a very sensible discussion about values and about different frameworks for evaluation. Um, and we can use those frameworks to adjust our positions as the new data comes in. So as you, as you say, well, you're a medium-term utilitarian. Um, and you are saying that there's a rational thing to do given the information before us at the moment. And as new information comes in, we should adjust our views. There's a concern that we become dogmatic, that we do things because we've always done it that way, um, or we think that's what's right, uh, and we ignore the new information. Uh, we forget the underlying reason for why we introduced something. So, for example, there might have been some good underlying reason for closing down restaurants in South Africa. The idea is people gather at restaurants, so we should close restaurants down that'll stop the, you know, stop the spread of the virus. What we're now doing is saying, well, if you're Woolworths who's allowed to sell food, you can't sell hot food because restaurants sold hot food. So there's a sort of strange irrational leap to say, well, this thing is restaurant-like in some ways, so we should stop it from selling hot food, but it's missed the underlying purpose for the prohibition in the first place. And so what we need to be able to do is constantly rationally update our rules so that we can adjust the situation. And that's what philosophers are quite good at doing is asking these hard questions, asking uncomfortable questions about what, what matters in life. You know, how much do we value an economy? How much do we value the quality of life? Which lives matter? And then thinking about who it is we can actually save, um, given the information that we have available to us. What is the cost of saving those things? And once the new information comes in, we've got our, our model in place, and we can start plugging in the information. So I think if we had the same conversation in a month, our framework discussion might remain identical, but our prognoses about what to do might change quite dramatically. Um, so Jason, it's, it's been an absolutely wonderful conversation. It's going to be the first of many. Um, going forward, I, I think our plan is to try and talk about um, some things that are COVID-related. COVID is going to have an impact in ethics, um, in the meaning of life, in a whole range of ways. Um, but there are also some things in philosophy that are kind of evergreen that are non-COVID related. 
Um, so we may talk about that. And uh, we plan on inviting some guests. So um, Jason mentioned um, Thad Metz, uh, who is probably one of the, the greatest philosophers um, alive in South Africa. Uh, I said to him a while ago over dinner, Thad, I think you're the most prolific philosopher in South Africa, given how many papers you produce. And he said, no, the world. <laughs> so um, I hope to have um, Thad on our show. Thad's written uh, the definitive book on meaning in life. Um, and I think that's, and he's written a great paper on how COVID is affecting um, our ability to have meaning in our lives. So I look forward to such a conversation. Um, and um, we're fortunate to have many, many friends in our circle who are very gifted philosophers, and I look forward to discussing uh, many things with them too. Yeah, and, and one of the topics that we really want to cover, which we haven't discussed at all here, is political legitimacy. So, you know, here we've purely looked at morality. You know, what is the moral thing to do? Lockdown or not lockdown? Which, which, which track do we choose? Or do we push the, the fat man off the bridge? But, you know, there's a separate question, which is, you know, is it okay for a government to constrain your movements? Not from a moral perspective, from a politically legitimate perspective. Are they legitimate in doing so? And there's another episode that we'd like to do on that as well. Excellent. Well, thank you guys so much for tuning in today. If you enjoyed our show, um, please hit the subscribe um, icon. And uh, we look forward to producing many more wonderful episodes.